Welcome everyone. This is the start of a new series of classes on the distortion on distortions of mind. And um, we're going to be covering four distortions of mind, although we could do four classes on this first topic, which is the controlling mind. <laughs> everyone can identify. Hopefully I've picked topics of the controlling mind which everyone can identify with. It's not so, don't think it, of it as the extreme. Because if you think of, uh, and I'll cover the controlling mind, the isolated mind, the obsessive mind, and the moody mind. And if you think, well, uh, controlling doesn't really resonate with me, think again. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so, uh, so for all of them, I think we can find something in there that r resonates. Uh, for instance, case in point, uh, I just got back from the East Coast, and uh, it took me two days to get back. I was, uh, four flights were either canceled or late. Uh, I was bumped from a flight. Uh, they signed me up for a flight, and then the plane that left, to get to the next city uh, was five minutes late, and I got right at the door, you know, and they just, boom, like that. <laughs> and, and it just was like that. And I, I saw my moral outrage. <laughs> but you know what's interesting is that you st I could see how people could get paranoid. <laughs> Right? When you lose your influence, when you don't have any influence, when you've lost your ability to control, you think people are doing it to you. <laughs> like some kind of conspiracy. It's very interesting. It really was. I mean, it, in, in that sense, it's a very serious comment. Because if I didn't have the meditation where I can, okay, wait a minute. Let me pull some sanity out of this. It was... And then I got up this morning, they booked me on a flight this morning, and I got, to the, I got there two hours early, just so that there'd be absolutely no mistakes. <laughs> I was at the ticket counter, it was a non-stop, Charlotte, Seattle, right? And he said, uh, well, where's your ticket from yesterday? I said, well, the woman last night took it and just gave me the, he said, well, I can't do anything for you. <laughs> He said, you'll have to go to American Airlines. I was flying U.S. Air. So think of this logic. You'll have to go to American Airlines and get a new ticket. What does that have to do with it, right? So I, I saw a supervisor. I said, come over. Would you come over here? Because I could see that I could lose it. I, there was, it was... <laughs> And so controlling mind is what we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, it's not to say that there isn't a time when the control, when control needs to be there. It's not as if we're whitewashing this thing and saying, you know, that all control is bad. So don't hear that. It's not. There are times in everyone's life all day long when controlling is what we have to do. 
if we have a ch children, it's obvious where that control needs to be placed. Um, and even in our own needs and works of the world. But there's a point when control can uh, cover the heart, really. It becomes an all-consuming way of relating to the world. It becomes a posture, it becomes a stance to how we do things. It becomes the way we work and move through the world. And we feel completely impotent and out of, contr out of control when we're not in an influential position to uh, determine events. That's what I was feeling. There was nothing I could do. And you know what the next component, when there's nothing you can do, you worry. That's how we feel the nothing to do. There was nothing I could do, nothing. Everything was completely out of my, it's like, you know, that's it. But the mind doesn't stop doing nothing when it feels out of control. It fills that space, that vacuum, with worry. With worry. So worry is often an indication of a way that we maneuver through life in terms of control. And when we don't have that access, the mind continues its momentum even if the body can't make a determination or do something influential. Now, there's a spiritual component to control that is worth considering so that, again, that we just don't whitewash the whole thing. And that is um, the spiritual uh, value of con con restraint, restraining oneself, so that we don't bend too far into unskillful behavior, the willingness to back off, the willingness, as one teacher puts it, um, to practice wise avoidance. And so that's another type of control to restraint, and I've talked about that in the past, and I'll talk about that e again. But again, so there's a spiritual side. There's a, the control, again, has a, it's not, um, when we, sometimes when we do talks like this, when I do talks like this, uh, people walk out thinking, no, it's a, this is a, a tendency I really need to, need to uh, be careful with, that it's all bad, and, and, and that's not the coloration that we're painting it tonight at all. We're just trying to understand it. We're just trying to understand the extremes of it. And this culture in particular, uh, with its sort of self-reliant attitude and all of that sort of thing, we fall easily into the spell of control. You know, but when you look at it, when you look at really what we are able to control, it's very little. And I'll go into that. But what does it give us? I, I, I think it's important to, to, give, um, to get a sense of what it gives us. It gives us a, a sense of uh, predictability, orderliness, security. It's a safe world in which, where our influence is being applied, right? And when we are listened to and our view is considered because we're influential, then it gives us a kind of confidence gives us a sense that, you know, that uh, we're, we have value. It's the self um, asserts itself, the, the, uh, asserts the feeling of ourselves through control. Right? We, we, we seem to have the world by the horns, so to speak. And opinions are a type of control. Because if we know we have a, a lock on the information, if we've 
build a certain power around the knowledge, which in this culture and in other cultures as well, that, that has a, 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 the person who knows has the most influence often, then holding that internally in terms of opinions allows us to feel that confidence, that self-confidence, and also be able to weigh and to be empowered in life. So there's a lot that uh, we get out of control. But when you really look at it, what is it? I mean, as meditators begin to look at the, what the body and mind consists of, really it's just data coming in and more data kind of scrambling the data coming in trying to make sense out of it, right? Well, you have control over the data coming in, what you see, what you smell, what you taste, what you feel. When you come here, you know, you get, you know you're going to get some kind of a dharma talk, but you don't know what you're going to hear. You don't know who's going to be here. You don't know what anything, really, about you just kind of come. And we think that's control. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we really don't have control of the very data, the, the sense data, that we, that determines us as human beings. And yet we think that we have so much influence over life. But at the raw level of what determines a human being, well, how about your mind? You have a lot of control over that. <laughs> Even if you are a beginning meditator, you know that thoughts come on their own. And you may exert a certain pressure to try to think a certain way, but the mind can snap in any direction at once at any particular time. And so even the thoughts, well, what about bodily functions, right? You have control over the body. Well, think how much time we spend in the course of the day doing something with this body that we have no control. We, we have to eat, we have to bathe, we have to um, eliminate, we have to sleep. If you look at how much time you really have outside of the body's control over you, you would be interested to, you'd be, it'd be interesting to see exactly, to quantify that amount. Now, what we do with control is we often internalize our, uh, our attempt to control. We, we try to control our thoughts. We try to control our emotions, don't we? And it's often because those internal patterns are so out of control that we then try to go out externally and control the external events so that we can live in harmony inside of ourselves by controlling the external events. Because the internal events, the emotions, the feelings, the thoughts that come up, they can't be controlled. And we find ourselves thinking they should be. We think we're just not trying hard enough. You know, I can really be a, I really could be free of, of anger if I just exerted enough will and held it at bay. And that kind of resistance, that sort of determination actually creates the energy for it to arise. And in fact, when we internalize that and it arises time and time again and we come back and say we're just not trying hard enough to control our anger or our thinking or whatever it is inside of ourselves that seems out of control, it leads to self-hatred. 
because we see how out, out of control inwardly we are, and no matter how much influence we try to um, place upon those processes, still they continue, and it leads to kind of a feeling of inadequacy or insufficiency and just a poor sense of self-worth. So we try to manipulate the outer to control the inner. If I can't do it in here, I'll, I'll control it out there. Or if I can't do it in here, I'll place what's in here out there and pretend like it's outside of me. So you have the anger. You have the, that's what prejudice is. Prejudice is a mind that is placed, has lost control of being able to deal with it inwardly, so it places it outside of itself. So it, and then it controls and manipulates externally, or hates externally, the very thing that's inside oneself. It's interesting, isn't it? I, um, I spent uh, a day doing a, uh, a day long with 12-step people. And uh, some of the, um, this, in, in this particular case, most of them were alcoholics. And um, one person mentioned, she said, uh, that originally she took alcohol uh, to be able to c control her internal world so that she could, um, she didn't like herself very much, and she took alcohol in excess so that uh, she could come to some um, fuzziness uh, of clarity so that she could be who she was without all of that pressure she was putting on herself, all the self-hatred. And then, after she would abuse the alcohol, she became out of control. And so the very thing she used to control her inward world eventually led to um, the bottoming out syndrome, where she was completely out of control. So then she had to come back out and drop the alcohol and try to look upon herself in a different way. <clears throat> my brother, um, after a many, many decades actually of drug abuse, uh, freed himself from the drug abuse, but then went and moved out of drugs into religion. And now is a very um, fundamental way of looking at religion as a way to maintain, well, if I don't have control, I'll give it to some other influence, God, and then God will have the ultimate control and I'll be safe within that. You see how it works? But you know what? Change is inevitable. <laughs> said the Buddha. <laughs> and our attempt to control is really our refusal to live in harmony with things. Our need is a lack of faith, really, isn't it? You know, after 25 years of practicing, when I was, when I wanted to get back home yesterday, it was hard to just relax with that and say, this thing's going to turn out, you know, let me just be with it. Let me just move with it. I was 
you know, I was walking around to different uh, airlines, seeing, you know, I was doing what I could to see, to try to influence the outcome. And I started thinking, you know, it all worked out. It wasn't, you know, no, nothing occurred that was really a disaster. But there's so little faith in those moments of internal stress when you're pressed to, to get somewhere, to do something. And we, we come out of our shell trying to influence every aspect of it, you know. And as I said, the worry is there and the stress is there. And in the absence, in the presence of all that, there's the absence of any kind of settling back and feeling any kind of harmony with things at all. Any sense that the world has a particular presence of its own without me trying to influence. It has its own movement. It has its own timing. And we lean so far in, you know, that you that we can't feel that rhythm. We can't feel what life has to offer. We can't feel the faith component, the faith the assurance that we can deal with things. If faith means nothing else, it means that we have the capacity to work with things as they arise without trying to wipe them away, but really work with them in, internally. And the, de the degree we want to control is the degree we will find, we will find ourselves, uh, the degree we want to control, to that degree we will find being out of control difficult. Our, the degree we want to influence, when influence is impossible, that to the same degree, to the same depth, we get shaken. Perfectionism, for instance, in this culture, is an attempt to control maximally. And inevitably, our perfectionism gets interrupted by change, by the imperfections of the world, because the perfection of the world does not come from our view of what perfection is. It includes the imperfections of the world. And if we can't include the imperfections of the world in our heart, then our perfectionism is really of just a, an ideal standard that we're trying to place on life that will never, ever be obtained by it. Life can't hold that. It's the ultimate act of control, really. And yet we are forever trying to... We, we appreciate in this culture someone who's perfectionistic. It's like a wink. Yeah, it's hard, but you're really doing... But it's not a wink. It's a disaster. <laughs> and when we're in that influence, life is our obstacle, not our ally, isn't it? It's like, where are these planes? <laughs> you can tell I had a fun weekend. <laughs> And here we have taken a number of weeks uh, earlier in the year to talk about wise view, the willingness to turn over that sense of, of um, critical sense of self-input and, and to receive. For the opposite of control is, re is receptivity, is the willingness to receive. And really, Dharma work starts with receptivity. When we sit, we're not trying to exert influence, we're receiving what is there. 
And so the way we sit, the stance and how we sit is really an invitation for life to come in and impart its wisdom to us rather than for us to lean into the experience or to try to manipulate it or control it in any way. And we even take away the strategies for control by saying don't avoid and don't hold on. Those are the mechanisms, those are the ways that we manage to control. And if we relinquish letting go, and if we relinquish holding on, and if we relinquish the aversion response, then we can actually receive the world. And it's the receptivity that is the hallmark of a Dharma student. And it's in that receptivity that wise view comes into play. The view of being connected, of actually being a part of things, rather than someone who is outside trying to influence the greater aspect of life through my wants and desires. And the controller is someone who's missing that kind of mental fluidity. There's a kind of an inflexibility there. Someone who's very opinionated in that is very, there's no fluidity. You can't receive much. And usually someone who has that kind of inflexibility has a life that's composed of that as well. Um, again, a personal example, um, and this was sort of the age of that, but my mother <coughs> had that depression, fear, need to control things. And the house that we lived in, I mean, you, there were rooms you couldn't go in because if you went in, they were messed up a little bit. You know, you, know, you couldn't sit on the sofa, you could you know, everything had to be like perfect. And so you just didn't go in part of the house. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> And many of us had that. I mean, that's because they were so, um, they were in such uh, deep fear through those depression era that it brought out such an amazing sense of control that everything in their lives became that way. I mean, it was like, Shh. And we had the Ozzy and Harriet years, you know, where it's going to be good. That's sort of... <laughs> And as controllers, which we all are, right? I'm a, I'm a reformed controller, right? <laughs> we all have to admit that. Come on in. Um, the problem is that we're continually disappointed. See, that's the hallmark of, of, of someone who's controlling, is that life is continually disappointing. And that leads, of course, to bitterness and cynicism. So someone who has a strong and perpetual need to control, often because it's, it can't be played out, and they're disappointed by events, they're disappointed by circumstances, often have a strong fear base, and a lot of self-dislike. You wonder what you get out of it. The problem is, you see, you don't see it as being, you see it as being you just haven't controlled enough. 
you haven't done enough control. It's not that the control is causing the disappointment or the cynicism or bitterness. It's, we don't go back for, far enough to look at the, what's generating this posture. We say, well, we just haven't done enough. So we lean even further forward, which causes more tightness, more inflexibility, more disappointment, more cynicism, more bitterness, more self-dislike. And we have to lean in more. See how the vicious circleness of it. It all comes from, uh, from unwise attention. It comes from not seeing, from not understanding what drives and perpetuates this sense and need to maintain. And so, some, at some point, many of us break, and we say, okay, if it's not going to be me who's in control, I'll find a teacher and then connect with that teacher, and they'll be the ones that'll be in control. They'll be the ones that know. And then I'll follow them around, and that will be like, you know, being in control except through the, through the person. And you know, people, even on the job, they try to um, withhold information. Information is, has such a value here that I had a boss once that just wouldn't tell me what I needed to know to do my job because he, he needed to be in control of imparting that information. I couldn't work this way. His need was so much to, to be the person he knows so that you know, he needed that posture in life. Let me read you an example of that. This is a, an experiment that was done many years ago, but it's still I, something I carry around with me because it shows, um, shows how far we can go under this. Under the guise of an experiment in learning, Milgram induced a group of volunteer, quote, teachers, unquote, to administer administer escalating electrical shocks to learners who gave wrong answers on a word test. Actually, the shocks were fake, but the learners were actors, and the learners were actors instructed to register the appropriate signs of agony as the jolts increased. You get, you get, you get this now? But the teachers were not in on the hoax. Although some were plainly distressed at what they were doing, an astonishing 65% administered the shocks beyond the lethal level of 450 volts. And they knew that. On the dial was an indicator that said, this is lethal. If you go over that, you'll kill this person. But because there was somebody in the room instructing them to do it, they could relinquish their responsibility and actually go over the lethal dose. To Milgram, that seemed proof of how ordinary people, by yielding their sense of responsibility to an authority figure, could be made to perform monstrous acts. See, the other side of control is a kind of of a sense of deep unworthiness and when we feel that unworthiness as I mentioned it's just a short 
gap before we look for someone who's worthy, that, who can be an ultimate, who can be an ultimate control. And thereby we just relinquish any responsibility as a human being. Because the world isn't working in accordance with how I want it to control. So it must be me, and so I must find somebody who is even more powerful than me, who can then substantiate the control that I don't seem to be able to do. And therefore I will relinquish my responsibility. And so whatever that person tells me, I'll do. Especially when we come to such esoteric fields, that seems so far and so distant from us, like spiritual work. Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit our way of, even we even here we can't control it. Now we really are in a fix. Because the only thing that's ever worked for us is our sense of control. We come to a spiritual tradition in which control is not and cannot be utilized well, they must know, because that's all I know about life is control. You must know. And so we give away our power. We give away the one thing that we have, which we should never give up, our willingness and ability to make decisions for ourselves. That should be our last, the bastion of our... We never give that up. Never. Just tell me what to do. But we can rediscover our relationship to control to small ways in life. It's just that we haven't seen how out of control things are. And we haven't been willing to put up with the fear of being out of control. It's too difficult. But there are small ways. We don't have to throw ourselves off the small things we can do. When something is out of place or you lose something, there's a sense of, of life not being in control. You lose your car keys. Use that. Use that as a way to work with the fear or the, the sense of chaos in the world. The sense of being out of control. Waking, uh, walking into a room full of strangers. For some of us, introverted type, that is like hell. <laughs> no control. Nobody I know in the room. Work with it. Even at that point, you can see, well, this isn't going to be a disaster. I mean, you know, you have enough sense to know that losing my car keys or walking into a room full of strangers isn't going to kill me or missing your flight. And to work with that. Or the first day of a job. You know that feeling? That feeling of, oh, God, I don't, know what, I don't know how to work the mechanisms here. Or just in general, how are we with not knowing? How, are, how is it when we don't know the answer or we don't know? Working again with that sense of being out of control. Because fundamentally, that's what keeps us applying this exertion on life again and again, rather than to take up a receptive pose that allows life to teach us. Wisdom can't come in when we're leaning into it, trying to influence. The very, what wisdom is, is understanding what life is as it is, rather than free, rather than with our control, it's free from our control. 
So you can see when we're in that mechanism, nothing can really impart any information to us. So to use those times, use the awkwardness, use that sense of, you know, where's my keys? You know, that, that moment of just frustration, which is life that is not perfect, right? The imperfection of life in that moment. Because the truth is that the universe is still feeding us. The energies are coming through us. And we have one of two ways to go. We can take that energy and apply our own empowerment and control and influence, or we can take that energy and apply a receptive quality of love. Those are the, those are the, those are two very distant and different paths from one another. So it's not that the universe isn't operating through us and that we don't have energy. It's just that we're taking that energy and shunting it into wrong view and then applying wrong view in everything we do. The view of separation, the view of you and me, the view of influence and ambition, the view of struggle, the view of disappointment. And you know what, 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 there's a beautiful component to settling back because there, there are miracles that are happening all the time. Not just miracles, I mean, real miracles, I mean, I, I was uh, at Gaia House in England and I had been sitting for six weeks, this was last year, at Gaia House. And so I was in a very kind of, just in touch Pose. So I walked down into the library of Guy House. Had not been into the library, maybe, I mean, had been there maybe six weeks and been there maybe three or four times. And so I was just kind of walking through. I just really didn't have any real idea what I was wanting. I went over and I saw a book in the bookshelf, and there are probably, oh, a thousand books in this. So I just went over and pulled one down and I looked at it and said, oh, quotations or uh, I, um, dialogues with Nisargadatta Maharaj. Nisargadatta was a teacher of mine about 1980. I didn't know that was the book I was pulling down, okay? And I opened it and the thing just opens on this page. I start reading it I think, my God. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, the dialogue that goes on was me. <laughs> I look at the, this is the, this is the truth. This is the absolute truth. I look at the date, 1980, the date, the, the, and I remember them taping these sessions. I had no idea that it had ever been transcribed into a book. And to, oh, the book opens, and my, my section of a 200 or 300 page book was like a page and a half. Boom. Now what is that? <laughs> Does somebody want to calculate the possibilities of that happening? You know? 
that's not there's something the universe is always doing that it's a beautiful part of being spiritually awake but we have to be willing to receive in order to see the life like that we have to be willing to step back and just watch the universe and its play and its mystery and its unfolding I was yesterday uh, talking to some hospice people uh, I spent uh, Sunday uh, morning uh, doing a uh, three-hour workshop with hospice people and stories we just told stories to one another and they're all that kind of story stories that just were you know like wow I I'll share some of those with you because they're really amazing stories at some point but we don't have enough time tonight but I just want to give you a sense of how it works you know it's working and sometimes you can get a glimpse of that and, and faith comes streaming in you go wow maybe you know let me just sit back here this is too beautiful to mess up that's what you begin to feel and my influence just messes it up and so, so we can pull back because the because the isolation see when we control we're so isolated we're so lonely we're so individuated we're so cut off we're so headstrong we're so lost in our world of what the world should be and how it should be played out and what things should be happening that we have no way of being transformed by it and it's not going to be played out that way I guarantee you because it just doesn't work that way change in the eventuality what the universe's role is is to show us that pattern that's its meaning not to live by your pattern or my patterns it's to show us that pattern so if you have a lot of need for control you're going to be stuck like I was in an airport that's it that's how it works I knew it right there I <laughs> in a different frame of, that's called karma <laughs> you see that's it that's because that's those are the lessons doesn't show the lessons that you've already learned you won't even notice because you've already learned them but as you begin to practice this more and more the deeper lessons come out the ones that are the ones that are in your system the ones you really believe you know those and it comes out and the universe begins to it's harder and harder lessons you know it's so we have to how are we going to learn them we can't learn them trying to influence them we have to learn them from that sense of okay okay so surrender to this let it be what it is you see you have to receive surrender and receive and we begin to see the synchronicity of the universe we just catch little glimpses of it you know just little wow god that's amazing that's amazing we've all had those kind of experiences haven't we that's what makes our heart come back out soften our heart just comes back out says oh yeah this is really worth doing you know that beautiful sense of being in harmony that beautiful sense of rhythm that beautiful sense of being in touch that's what we're doing here but we have to understand what strategies that we've employed that cover up that rhythm 
And so what, that's what these four weeks are about, is to look at, to deeply into those strategies, and there's homework here. Please everybody pick up a homework sheet and work with that in the course of the week. None of us are outside these distortions of mind. Can we sit for just a minute? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.